Hello everyone, good afternoon and welcome back to the third and final panel session for the online day of Singapore Perspectives 2024. My name is Wong Chin Yi and I'm a research fellow at the Institute of Policy Studies. I'll be the moderator for this panel. This upcoming session is titled The Centrality of Wellbeing and will build from the discussions from earlier sessions while also setting the backdrop for our in-person panel discussions next Monday. Before we begin, I would like to share a few housekeeping rules. Firstly, we would like to remind everyone that Singapore Perspectives 2024 is open for media coverage. Also, you may type your questions into the Q&A panel located on the right side of your screen at any time during the session. We would like to invite all attendees at our conference to contribute to our discussion in a respectful and safe manner, focusing on the issues at hand. IPS reserves the right to act in a way to ensure that this is always the case, including through the chat or Q&A functions on our conference site. Now to introduce the session and our speakers. As set out comprehensively by the panelists in the previous two sessions, discussions on youth well-being and mental health are becoming more and more pivotal in a world increasingly shaped by societal pressures and global challenges. Well-being is perhaps a thread that ties all the other segments together and can impact areas such as work and family life in a reciprocal fashion. In view of these growing challenges, we are privileged to have four esteemed panelists join us to share more about both research and practice in this area and to discuss some of the more pertinent or salient issues facing youth today as well as protective factors and potential interventions. First up, we'll have Associate Professor John Wong, who is the Lin Joyin and Yo Bu Kim Professor in Mental Health and Neuroscience, as well as a Senior Consultant Psychiatrist in NUH. He's also the Director of the Mind Science Centre at NUS. Subsequently, we'll hear from Professor Crystal Abidin from the School of Media, Creative Arts and Social Inquiry at Curtin University. She is also the director of the Influencer Ethnography Research Lab and deputy director at the Korea Research Center. We also have Dr. Jonathan Quack here with us, and he's a mental health researcher and research consultant of Total Wellness Initiative SG, a prevention-oriented health and wellness social enterprise. His research interests lie in how people conceptualize and understand mental health recovery in the local context. Finally, we'll also introduce you to Mr. Narasiman Tibasiha Mani who is the co-founder and executive director of Impact Limited, a local charity that enables youth to foster ecosystems of care spanning across three arms, namely education, mental health care, and community. As always, the speakers' full bios are available on the conference website. Before we invite Associate Professor John Wong to begin the sharing, we also want to share a short trigger warning. We want to acknowledge that the discussions on youth, mental well-being, and mental health may involve conversations that could be sensitive or triggering for some individuals. Topics such as mental health challenges, experiences, and societal issues may be discussed openly. We encourage everyone to prioritize their well-being during the session. If at any point you find the discussion uncomfortable or distressing, we want to remind you that it's perfectly okay to step away from the discussion. Our goal is to foster a respectful and understanding space for everyone, so please be mindful of your own comfort level and the well-being of others throughout the panel discussion. Thank you for your understanding. And now, let us invite Associate Professor John Wong to kick off the session proper with his sharing. John, please. Thank you very much, Chairman Dr. Wong. Uh, first and foremost, uh, I'm John, uh, the psychiatrist, uh, as a clinician, educator, as well as researcher at NUS, Department of Psychological Medicine and the NUS Mind Science Centre. So I'd like to thank the organiser for inviting me to join this distinguished panel for this uh, symposium this afternoon. Uh, can I have the slide, please? Yes, thank you. And uh, given the uh, title of uh, the theme of Singapore Perspective Conference 2024 is on youth, uh, I thought it would be useful for me to share 
my perspective professionally uh, in terms of mental wellness and health of youth, uh, drawing from the epidemiological findings uh, that we uh, concluded a national study in 2023. Uh, the study uh, focused on age group of 10 to 18 years old, which is a prelude to uh, the young youth and emerging adult age group of 18 to 30. Next, please. Before I start, um, I'd like to have a disclaimer. Uh, first, I think this is an academic presentation on my part in my own personal and professional uh, capacity. And um, uh, I understand there will be media coverage. So any uh, inquiry, uh, we will refer back to our COPCOM's uh, colleague to uh, uh, manage that. Uh, and we will be happy to follow any queries. Uh, first and foremost, I think as you look at the slides, um, based on last year's census count, 2023, uh, third quarter, Singapore has a, 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 a achieved a population of 5.9 million. And those below 20 years old uh, came out to about close to 0.8 million, about 13.3%. As you look at the pyramid of the population on the right, uh, you can see that the red dots are the census uh, 10 years ago in 2013. And obviously, we have shrunk in terms of the age group of 10, to 20 years old uh, compared to 10 years ago, uh, partly due to lower birth rate uh, replacement. Uh, but you also can see that it's part of a population aging process. Next, please. So with a close to, uh, yeah, we have close to 0.8 million of our youth in the less than 20 and another 0.5 to 0.8 million in the 20 to 30 years old, you, you find that it is important for us to understand the different stages of uh, psychosocial development and personal development uh, that is happening uh, from in terms of psychological uh, 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 basis as well as a, a medical basis and phys physiological basis. But uh, in short, essentially, I thought I just want to share two concepts. Uh, youth is a very exciting period of growth. Uh, it is a period of transition from dependency of childhood where the, the, the young child is totally dependent on parents for feeding, for protection, for clothing, even for education to the level of independence in adulthood. This is a very fascinating uh, period of transition because with independence, the, the individual can achieve much more of his or her potential and interest. But the, the, the important thing which some of us may not be fully aware is the, the need for the development of interdependency as member of community. Uh, as we go independence, but the, the level of interdependency on fellow members of the fraternity or community actually increases as well. As you look at the, the um, uh, 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 psychosocial theory of uh, uh, Eric Erickson, uh, my professor colleague used to make fun of it and saying that this is really a Caucasian Western theory. But as a clinician working for the last 30 years, working with youth and uh, young children, it is very true that uh, even our local uh, multi-ethnic children and youth growing up do experience these stages of psychosocial development. And in particular, uh, you look at the two green block uh, where the teenagers and young adults going through, it's really the period of identity uh, definition and, and uh, evolution uh, versus those who struggle with it and as a result may experience some real confusion, as well as in the later part of young adult uh, teenage years going to young adult where we develop intimacy relationship that support us and similarly we support others uh, versus uh, feeling to do so adequately uh, can be frequently associated with isolation and feeling of loneliness. Next. So I think the topic here is really about the, the well-being of youth 
uh, I just want to introduce three, uh, a concept of what we normally refer to as mental health, mental wellness, as well as mental disorder. Very quickly, mental health is really a state of well-being where individual realize his or her own abilities and learn to cope with normal stresses in life, can work in a productive way, but importantly is to make a contribution to his or her community. This is how uh, the traditional society tend to look at uh, mental health. And of course, there are various determinants of mental health. It could be social factors, it could be psychological factors, it could be biological factors. And some are within our control, some is part of genetics or, or prenatal uh, uh, effect on the child. And as a result, we may not be at control of it, but we have to bear the consequences and learn to negotiate or navigate uh, through this period of growth that will subsequently determine some of the risk or even protective factors of mental health. Next. Whereas mental wellness is a little bit more transient state because it is a state that where you control our thoughts, our emotion and behavior. So when we talk about mental issues, psychological issues, actually there are three key domains that we are dealing with. It's our thinking, it's our feeling, and it's our act, action, our behavior. And it's, it's, it's this wellness that allows us to handle challenges. And because uh, sometimes difficulties may arise from, our, from time to time in our environment, in our lives, uh, the, the need to build strong relationship and, and the need or the benefit of enjoying life, uh, it becomes a consequence of mental wellness. And my colleague later on in the panelists will talk more about this. Working to, to, towards mental wellness, I think there are a few things that we commonly uh, pay attention to is our own needs and feelings. And of course, besides looking inward and being self-centric, it is important to also allow ourselves to uh, have some aspiration to have some ideas or even set some goals so that in our life uh, we have certain objectives or goals uh, to work towards. Uh, that helps to build uh, mental wellness. And of course, uh, there, there's no uh, uh, mental health or mental wellness without having a, a good physical state of, of, of the body uh, where healthy lifestyle is very important to achieve that. Next. So what do we know about mental disorder? I think... Um, during COVID, um, uh, many, many media, society and parents and youth are uh, becoming more and more aware because of increased mental literacy and also going through a pandemic. It is quite an immersion of experience that we become more aware of the effect of a crisis, become a, uh, aware of the effect of so-called a, a so-called disaster uh, that could impact on individually, uh, impact individually or a, a group of, of members of the society or even the whole nation. So the disturbance of emotion, thinking or behavior is something that people are paying attention to much more than before. And of course, this actually uh, derived through the function of our brain circuit, uh, the neurons and the circuit. And of course, there is an interaction between gene and environment. And because of the interaction and the uh, uh, dynamic interchange may vary, uh, may vary and range in intensity, uh, you have, have a permutation of a different outcome. And of course, some outcome is that it helps us to be more resilient, to be stronger uh, and emerge uh, as, as, as a, a, a positive outcome. Uh, to a crisis, but sometimes we may suffer challenges or even be dented or even be impaired. Uh, that's where functional changes or impairment that affect, uh, uh, affect our interpersonal or social or vocational abilities uh, can, can have a major uh, um, negative consequences on uh, uh, individual. 
And I think when we talk about mental disorder, it is really a, 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 a situation that there are so much research to look at what is evidence-based treatment uh, by trained professional uh, to help us uh, mitigate this issue of mental disorder. So it is a severe state uh, whereby there are evidence-based treatment and there are functional changes or impairment. Next. And how does the brain work? I think uh, from a medical perspective, of course, there are six primary domains that how the brain works. It could be our thinking, it could be our sensation, our perception, it could be our emotion, it could be our behavior, action, or even uh, our physical uh, uh, feelings or, or experience of somatic. Or sometimes it could be just a signaling within ourselves, uh, being responsive or being hypersensitive to the environment. But Broadly speaking, in a medical context, we normally will, will categorize into two uh, uh, disturbance of the brain function. Uh, that is the sign, what do, what do we see as, as uh, uh, disturbing, and what are symptoms, what the person experience and report. Next. And it is important at this point of time to look at, uh, to introduce the idea that the temporary or transient state of mental wellness uh, it is important to look at the transient state, but it is also to recognize that overarching a life course approach. Because all stages of an individual's life obviously are intricately intertwined and interconnected with each other, uh, and, and, and as well as uh, the connection in the social system, both past, present, and future generation of themselves, their friends, and their family. And early life experiences actually um, definitely would have an impact uh, as early as preconception phase, during the developmental phase, or even during the early trajectory of their childhood growing up, or teenage years and the youth year. And all this effect carries on to adult and even subsequently when we age. So the health and wellness of individual and community depends on the interaction of multiple risk and protective factors throughout one's life. And early and appropriate intervention during the uh, youth, uh, childhood and teenagers and youth days, I think has showed in various research study and population study that uh, it, is, it does pay off uh, to promote uh, optimal uh, human development as well as society growth. Next. This point, I'd like to uh, draw some uh, uh, observation and some information that we, we glean from the Singapore Year Study 2020 to 2023. This is a national epidemiological study, and we also study resilience, among other factors. And uh, we use a major instrument called Youth Self-Report Skill, and it was shown that it is a good and reliable and valid measure to assess psychological well-being of young people. And results shows that young people with internalizing and externalizing problems uh, report a higher uh, numbers of negative psychological states compared to those without such problems. So sometimes we do define well-being by the absence of negative psychological state. But that is uh, one aspect of reporting. But it's important to recognize that the well-being uh, are also influenced by two other uh, 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 important um, uh, factors. One is how the individual develop their identity. The other is how the individual develop their resilience. And these findings uh, from this study actually can help uh, to share uh, greater insight to our mental health professionals and even mental health service uh, program developer like our colleagues and the panelists here to design their intervention. As you can hear, some of the intervention they have actually championed in their respective organization to enhance the psychosocial adjustment of youth uh, and create an a, 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 a environment that cultivates mental well-being and resilience. Next. 
so what are the 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 numbers and the the the, the state of affair we 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 observed during this uh, study uh, that was conducted 2020-2023 next to qualify is that um, this study obviously when we planned was before uh, the national uh, and uh, uh, a global pandemic of COVID. Uh, but when we started collecting data, obviously it walked into the COVID. So we must qualify by saying that what we observe is unique to a unique uh, pandemic state. Uh, in two years' times, uh, when the uh, pandemic state is fully uh, normalized uh, back to uh, uh, pre-COVID phase, uh, there is a possibility that we will repeat the survey again uh, selectively. But this slide basically is to help us socialize the idea with the uh, panelists here as well as to uh, uh, participants in the, the, the Zoom conference uh, to recognize that many of us, as demonstrated by this uh, pyramid, uh, it is something that we notice that uh, uh, some of us are in the blue pansy state in most of the time in terms of mental health state. Uh, that is normal and that should be the normal thing. But occasionally we may experience uh, distress. Uh, we are temporarily upset for a moment, for a day or for a few days in a week. And this actually uh, does create an uh, uh, inner uh, sign of distress. Uh, then the second uh, 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 phase, if the uh, distress is not resolved or doesn't improve, doesn't go away, it may persist or the problem is greater than what an individual can manage, uh, then obviously it becomes a mental health problem where the mood and emotion usually are affected first. Then mental illness, as what we said earlier on, besides being a medically defined condition or psychologically defined condition in a clinical sense, uh, it is a lot more complex because there are risk factors from genetic makeup, environmental factors. But more importantly, uh, what we define as mental disorder or illness uh, has got a basis of treatment and, and uh, based on evidence treatment, they could or would normally respond and uh, resolve. Uh, most of the time. And this obviously is what uh, clinicians and the ministry are concerned and worried about because they do have to provide enough services to support this group. But what we saw during COVID is that uh, those of our uh, population who experience temporary mental distress or mental problem, uh, they also suddenly realize that they need professional help. And that's where the surge in demand for uh, mental health services and support uh, 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 increased exponentially. And that's where it creates a perceived state of panic that actually uh, everybody seems to have a lot of problems. But yes, people are having problems, but they were acutely aware of it. And But they may not be in the range of mental disorder illness, but they may be in the range of mental problem or mental distress. Next. Uh, very quickly, um, what we saw during the 2020 to 2023, what is the rate of anxiety symptoms? Uh, this is just about symptoms uh, of clinical significance. It was as high as for the 10 to 18 years old, as high as 41.7%. Pretty startling, uh, one of the higher level among countries in our region. Uh, effective state, uh, effective problem like mood, 15%. Uh, so it's about one in six. Um, then, of course, some disturbed behavior is about 6%, which is not very different before COVID. But what is important is 0.4 on the right upper quadrant is 12.9% of the youth uh, surveyed of the 3,336 participants uh, had both uh, clinical mood and anxiety symptoms. So basically, it's one in six. So this is very important to recognize that uh, one of the so-called epidemic of concern in terms of mental health issues actually centered around mood and anxiety. Next. And 
at the age group of 10 to 18, which is the age group that are more at risk of developing mood and anxiety symptoms, in the odds ratio, we found that both uh, 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 15, 16, and 17, 18, for mood, uh, the, the, the odds ratio of 1.9 uh, for 15, 16 years old, that means they, they have 0.9. Uh, increased risk of developing mood problem compared to 11, 12. So we find that 15 to 16 is the, the first uh, 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 period of life where they are starting to experience uh, clinical symptoms of anxiety or depression. But when it comes to 17, 18, it is still high, higher than 11, 12, but it dropped a little bit. And then for gender between male and female, all being equal, uh, the female gender has a slightly higher risk of 20% more than male. Uh, in de developing anxiety symptoms. Next. And uh, when we look at other demographic profile, I think what is notable to note is that uh, a lot of things seems to be non-significant non statistically, but there's one area that uh, differentiate mood disorder uh, or mood clinical symptoms uh, is uh, uh, the uh, students or participants that are coming from single parent family. They are under a lot more uh, uh, um, challenges and, and strain. Uh, as a result, uh, it's associated with uh, 1.7 uh, odds ratio of developing a mood disorder. Where else the rest, uh, there is no statistical significance between uh, the other uh, household type or even parents at higher education level. Next. So now I'm going to, just now I cover the range of mental distress, mental health problems and mental disorder. So uh, that uh, three tiers essentially uh, generate about 41.7% for those anxiety symptoms. But now let's look at the real mental health disorder where they really need uh, 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 targeted treatment uh, in so-called in the mental health uh, uh, service that was uh, published by MOH last October. Uh, that will be the tier four services. Next. Uh, in the study, we found that about 12% of uh, children with adolescent uh, met full criteria for at least one current disorder. So it was quite staggering to worry that, oh, 41.7% of them had anxiety, clinical symptoms. Uh, but when you start counting disorder, the numbers were more consistent with what we are familiar with in literature and compared to data in other countries, and even comparing data in Singapore. So uh, it is quite important to recognize that. Uh, that we actually uh, uh, need to uh, uh, recognize that the, the, the number of uh, uh, mental health disorder is a, a little bit lower. Next. Okay, so I will just end with these slides by saying that the prevalence of mental health disorder actually uh, is not very different compared to pre-COVID level and other countries. But I think more importantly is to share that uh, the mental health disorder uh, requires a very specialized service to support them. Uh, first assess, screen, assess, and diagnose and treat them. Uh, but the challenge, of course, we are all aware, we need to be very careful not to, not, not to allow these this, uh, processes to create a stigmatization uh, for the individual, but to provide early assess and uh, early help for them so that they can early recovery. But I think for the other two groups of mental health distress or mental health problem, uh, that the services out there, I think, are trying to address uh, this group of uh, individual. And I think there's a lot of scope, a lot of work to be done. And I think my panelists will talk more about it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, John, for sharing this comprehensive overview of the state of youth, mental well-being and health in Singapore today. 
Just a gentle reminder that we have each of the panelists do a short sharing in turn first, and then we'll hold the Q&A session subsequently. So next up, we will invite Professor Krista Bidin to share more about her work as well. Krista, please. Thanks, Dr. Wong. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me at this session. I am Professor Crystal Evidin, and I'm an anthropologist of internet cultures. So I'm going to take a slightly different disciplinary route to thinking about youth and mental health, looking at what young people do on the internet, what they do in digital media spaces, what they do in devices, and what this means for culture in general when we think about young people as a group across space and time. Um, this has been research I've done across dozens of projects, so allow me to give us three provocations, several vignettes from different projects, and also for us to reconsider where Singapore sits in a whole spectrum of things when we think about digital cultures as a regional or as a global space. Caveat, I'm going to sound as if I'm overly positive about the internet for our well-being, but do keep in mind that this is my job. As an anthropologist, as much as the world can be depressing, it is my job to spend time with young people, with prolific internet users, to find out why they are still on the internet. And surely for those of them who retain value and community in that space, there is something of benefit to them, which is why they are still here, which is why a lot of the responses tend to feel a bit positive towards well-being on the internet in this space. Second caveat, when we speak of youth, we're going to go very general here, looking at the 15s to the 35-year-olds, which means a lot of the data that I'm pulling from my different projects today looks at true cohorts, the millennials, like myself, as well as Gen Z. So let's first begin. My first provocation to all of us in the room is, when we speak about youth and well-being, what is place? If I were to say this in young people parlance, what even is social media? Where do you live on the internet? Because when we read headlines, especially sensationalized ones from the news and from the, um, the internet viral clicks, we tend to think of social media as a monolith, like cell phones are bad for you. Selfies make people vain. Young people spend so much time scrolling. Medical professionals are seeing people with tendonitis, even though they're youth. It tends to posit the internet and social media as this one ginormous space where everything is equal and experienced in a very homogenous manner, when in reality, we know that depending on the platform that you spend your time in, maybe even within a platform where you spend time in the threats, in subreddits, in Insta Live versus Into Space, on YouTube blogs versus YouTube Live, all of these carry different norms and values. And the reality is that the feature of these internet spaces, the architecture of the spaces, structures the way we communicate with each other and then structures the way we feel about ourselves. So to give you an example, in Singapore on YouTube, there is a very nice community of artists who also think of themselves as small business owners. They make art, they make craft, and one of the popular genres is to produce what they call a studio vlog, showing people behind the scenes of how they tend their craft, how they pack their ways, their wares, before they send this out to their viewers. Now, there's generally not a lot of very real-time directional conversation because these are vlogs that are recorded. But the well-being here seeps in and is portrayed when these young entrepreneurs are talking about precarity, entrepreneurialism, the fact that they may have gone against the grain in a society like Singapore, where it's quite unusual for a young person, Gen Z, fresh out of secondary school or fresh out of university to be a small business owner in their homes. If we think about other platforms like Facebook, looking at the old millennials here in the room, 
Um, there is a very popular genre of live sales where people tend to showcase an item, whether it's Pasamalam style selling you food or in the more Atta style selling you secondhand branded goods. And it is in these spaces of very, very intensive 30 minute blocks that people suddenly feel this collective effervescence or this sense of community. Well-being here may be negotiated in consumption. I'm buying this because it makes me feel better. And it's completely different from the medical take towards how we feel about ourselves and our, our mental health. But it's also in these spaces that we see glimmers of people reaching out to communities via the concept of thin solidarities or thin ties. You know, the people you don't generally know very well, the people you don't speak to often, maybe the person you often see on the bus and you awkwardly smile to or wave, but you've gone way past the moment of introducing yourself and in introducing your name. That is a lot of the replication of experiences we have for all the millennials on spaces like Facebook Live. A third example, if we think more specifically about Instagram live chats, especially the ones run by influencers, here is where the staged parasocial relations really allows young people to feel as if they're being heard because they're being responded to. People are um, talking to them in a space. People are reading out their comments in a live space. And again, while it can feel that they are listened to and they've got that sense of community, we must also be a little bit more cynical and realize that the influencers who are organizing these chats, after all, peddling in commercial intimacies where your presence and your views equals the visibility for them, which can then transform into monetization. It is not to say that any of the intimacies and nice exchanges are fake or false, it is just to understand that they are structured in a specific way that can make you feel a very emphasized sense of intimacy that may not exist beyond this space. So that's the first provocation. Where is the place for you on the internet? The second provocation is people. Who is your online community? When we say youth, when we say our people, who are they even? Are you speaking from the standpoint of a creator? or of a consumer of content? Are you speaking for yourself as an individual or for an online community that you belong to? In an anthropological sense, this is really important because we need to consider what is the majoritarian or the minoritarian values. If you enter a room, supposing you're a queer person, a minority race person, a single mom, a person with a disability, do you feel like you need to hide and mask and carry yourself in a different way or can you just announce yourself and feel like you fit in right away? In young people parlance these days, what are the vibes of this group? How can I fit in? In the political parlance of Singapore, what are your OB markers? What are your out-of-bound markers? What can you safely talk about? What do you need to conceal? What do you need to speak in and double speak? Double-coded language, social steganography. This is important because our ability to disclose different versions and different facets of ourselves structures our comfort and structures how we feel in these moments of interaction online. Let's turn to examples in Singapore again. This time, let me start with the old millennials in the room. If you're an old millennial in your mid-30s living in an HDB neighborhood, chances are you're probably in a WhatsApp group for your neighborhood for group buys, where people every evening may consolidate orders if they want to purchase a dessert, a food item, or a wholesale thing. And it's in these moments, again, that people start to friend their neighbors a bit more, start to know a little bit more about the person next door, upstairs, in the next block over. These are the small glimmers of hope 
that help us revive what we used to lament over the loss of the Kampong community feel, the fact that we are all now sequestered into our own houses in our own rooms. So social media here, looking specifically at messaging media, offers us these types of digital watering holes where we can invite these socialities into our spaces and negotiate them on our own terms, whether you're an extrovert or an introvert. If you are the variety of Singaporean who watches the National Day Parade every day, you know that that is the once in a year where Twitter is suddenly alive because a lot of people have feelings about the different performances put on there. But it's also in this time where the hashtag, the network solidarities in this space, allow people to negotiate, what does it really mean to be a Singaporean? What if you are an immigrant? What if you're a mixed race? Where do you fit in this narrative? And finally, most recently, if you were to look at an online community like TikTok, where humor is the baseline vernacular for young people to call out issues that are difficult to talk about, where humor and laughs are used to lubricate conversations about very difficult issues, here is where you might feel a little bit more comfortable entering the space, but your well-being and your participation is contingent upon your ability to speak the language. Last but not least, third provocation, period. When was your youth? When were you on social media? And in the parlance of young people speak, what is your era? When were you online? If you were like me and old millennial who spent a lot of time on the internet since the 2000s, we used to live in the era of network publics, where we assume that every time we go on the internet, we are trying to maximize visibility. Everything we put out there, we are told by teachers and our parents, stays out there. And we fear for the fact that something you posted 10 years ago might haunt you during a job interview session or when you're suddenly called out by citizens of the internet. If you belong to Gen Z though, we are now living in the era of refracted publics, where there's so much content, so much happening on an everyday basis that people are strategizing to even be seen, be seen by the algorithm, by automation, and also be seen by human eyeballs, the analog, in order to even feel that your voice can be heard. So likewise, whether or not you're just simply posting, a post, a picture, a video, a vlog, whether you're entering a co-present space like streaming or chatting, or whether you're a person who is a creator of memes that needs to be very up-to-date with dialogue and current affairs in order for your post to be relevant and current, all of this requires you to be very attuned to time, temporality, and sensitivity. Let me end off with a homage to the old millennials in the room like myself. Back in the day, in the 2000s, there used to be a very major phenomenon of blog shops where young women like myself would go online, camp out on a website, wait for an item we want to buy, and then put in the comment section, please reserve X for me. Those were not the days of iBanking, my friends. We would rush to ATMs, do a manual transfer, print out the slip, take the photo and say, I have paid you, please mail the item to me. You wait a week or two, the item appears at your house. Now, in these moments, in this period, we talk about well-being in terms of the fact that in these moments of camping, you make friends. You might go for a meetup to collect your order at a coffee shop, meet with friends, and then find these small organic communities in these spaces. If you're a person who's Gen Z, there is a likelihood that you might have spent most, if not all, of your university or junior college or polytechnic experience in your bedroom. And we would talk about COVID-19 impacting your well-being. We're now thinking about the people who are awake at 2 a.m. on Instagram Live, lamenting how life is difficult or how chores are difficult to get through. 
we're thinking about young people in the WhatsApp groups navigating misinformation for when the people and their families of the older generations tell them to put onions, garlic, and an assortment of vegetables under their pillows to help ward off COVID. We're dealing with a very different type of deluge of information, different boundaries of who gets to be in our online community, and different norms and practices of how frequently we can be in these spaces and how frequently we can opt out. When I was a young person, it was perfectly okay to not respond to messages immediately. I could leave my phone at home and go out to a shopping mall and come home. These days, not responding to an hour would probably leave people very concerned over your well-being and you're meant to be instantaneously connected all the time. So the period also impacts the norms of what it's like to exist properly as a young person on the internet. So in summary, place, people, and period, we need to know where do you live on the internet? Who is your online community on the internet? And what is your generational era and context for which you were on the internet? And these three baselines helps us understand how to even approach the question of well-being and how we've spent our time online. Thanks. Thank you, Krista, for this very interesting deep dive into aspects of well-being that may be um, particularly important or relevant for the youth of today, given the effects of social media and also boundless digital connectivity. Next, we will pass the time to Dr. Jonathan Craig to share about his work with Total Wellness Initiative Singapore. Jonathan, over to you. Yeah, thank you, um, Dr. Wong, and also um, uh, the final panelists for being here today to discuss about this very important topic regarding youth and well-being. Um, so can I get my slides up first and I'll just do the introduction with the slides. Yep. So maybe let me just share a bit about um, Total Wellness Initiative Singapore, where I serve as a research consultant currently. Um, and, you know, alongside my work as a mental health researcher, uh, my work at Total Wellness really focuses on prevention-oriented psychoeducational workshops on concepts related to wellness and well-being. Because we believe, you know, the best way to tackle mental, physical health issues is really through an upstream approach that focuses on building healthier habits. So we see our space, our position in the mental health space as being a, a very complementary one by potentially reducing some of the caseloads from people who may need this support you know, the already strained mental health care system prevents that from occurring. So in 2023, um, we engage hundreds of youth through our various programs and events. But beyond that, I have been working with young people since 2014, first as a volunteer leader at the Institute of Mental Health. And today, I will be sharing some of the insights that I've gained over the years um, through my approach and through our approach of tackling youth mental health issues. Okay, so... At the core of everything we do are these 10 dimensions of wellness that we have adopted as our guiding model and approach towards wellness and well-being. In the following slides, I will be sharing um, some of them and how they are relevant to youth. Before sharing one of our key offerings, which is a guided wellness planning workshop that we have provided to people from all walks of life, uh, youth and older individuals alike, many of whom have shared how easy it is to actually follow and use. And as mentioned previously, we have chosen to focus on prevention and some early intervention work um, because at the acute, at the chronic intervention stage, some of the times through my work with young people as a volunteer, as a mental health researcher, I've come to realize that by the time a youth is diagnosed, it becomes a lot more challenging for them to achieve their definition of recovery. And far too often, they only seek help 
after years of trying to manage these challenges alone, without knowing where to turn to, not feeling like their issues were serious enough, or simply they were too ashamed to seek help. And because of that, they start their recovery journey at a disadvantage. And given that we know about the strong associations between treatment gaps and a person's treatment outcomes. So we are trying to break this trend at Total Wellness Initiative by helping them to learn how to help themselves. And if they are not able to, to commit to seeking help early. So for our 10 dimensions of wellness, we first start off with you know, the psychological dimension. This is what uh, Professor John Wong talked about earlier. You know, it's basically how we manage our different mental states, you know, our thoughts, our emotions, um, and also the behavior that comes from that. Because you know, they're all interconnected, it covers our ability to navigate our own and others' feelings, you know, understanding, accepting them, making sure that we remain mentally well, or seeking help when we need to. So with a greater focus on mental health issues these days, more youth seem to be um, open to talk about these issues. But we also need to be very careful not to generalize this awareness and willingness to talk about mental issues as help-seeking because these are two separate constructs that often become confused and are used interchangeably. But just because someone is willing to talk about it, it does not mean they are willing to seek help if they need to seek help. Because self-stigma seems to play a very significant role in preventing our youth from seeking help. So the next dimension we often talk about is occupational. People think about this dimension from a more career perspective, but for young people, for youths, their occupations are students. It's the other aspects of their lives which give them meaning. It's the other aspects of their lives that are rewarding to them. So we try to help them navigate the different aspects within their lives, you know, both personally and occupationally as a student. How can they maximize their time in school and outside of school through a well-balanced approach of um, identifying what they need to do in order to be, you know, maximize their, this particular dimension of wellness. The next one is environmental wellness. Basically, we do not often realize how our physical environment actually influences us very greatly. And we need to start building a better relationship with the built environment, the way that our natural environment is set up being aware of how the earth's natural state is actually affecting us. So a lot of young people are very concerned with, you know, the climate change these days. They are a lot more eco-oriented. Some of them are even experiencing things that we call eco-anxiety, you know, having to seek help to cope with this anxiety because of the way that they are looking at climate, the way that it's changing and the inaction that comes from the different bodies that are supposed to be you know, guiding this change towards a more positive direction. The next uh, dimension is really the intellectual one, which revolves around our ability to engage with information. It talks about an innate desire to learn, to know how to use this information to expand our mind, expand our knowledge, and be able to share these gifts with other people. So for young, for young people, this normally is about what can they offer to other people? What can they learn? How can they learn more effectively? Financial, this is often overlooked when it comes to young people, but helping them to kind of navigate some of these financial, their own financial values, how do they make financial decisions? 
how do they live and manage within their financial means. All these can be very important life lessons. And I think there are you know banks out there that are working on some of these initiatives to share with younger people and especially those from less privileged positions. But I think in general, if we start talking about money from a younger age, it helps our youth better plan for their future and consequently achieve a higher level of financial wellness. So next one, social dimension. This is about our relationships with people and the society around us, how we maintain positive, healthy relationships. But more importantly, how do we contribute to the broader community? How can we feel a part of it? I think uh, Prof. John just now mentioned a bit, and you know, Prof. Crystal also talks about the importance of understanding a person's place within their society, even if it's just an online space. There is also a part of them that feels a part of this community as well. Spiritual, our spiritual wellness is about the way that we construct meaning in life and a connection to something larger than all of us. For some people, it's about religion. For other people, it's about purpose. It's about value. And I think increasingly, we are seeing youths tackle this issue of spiritual wellness at a much younger age. We see them asking, you know, what are they here in, on this world for? What can they contribute to the society? How can they find meaning in their lives? And that's why you see a lot of impact-oriented uh, professions. The, the numbers of people who are seeking out these professions are rising because I think a younger generation, they want to find some kind of value in what they're doing. They don't want to simply work for the sake of it. The next point we talk about is digital. So I think uh, Prof. Christo has covered this quite extensively earlier. She talks about how, um, you know, the way we need to find that balance with technology. And I think Technology inherently is a double-edged sword. I think it can have very positive aspects to it, but there are also those negative aspects that we do need to consider and be careful about. So for young people, it's really about balancing these, these different aspects and identifying how they can best deal with their technology instead of letting the technology you know, overtake their lives. And we have the creative dimension of wellness as well, which is a about individuality. It's about expression of self and being able to be ourselves throughout life. Um, so the last point is really about physical wellness, pretty straightforward. This one is about our physical health and how we can look after it more effectively. Okay, so the wellness plan that we do for you know young people, for older adults, it's basically a personalized document, you know, uh, whenever we teach people how to do it, we always emphasize the importance of fitting it into their routines so that they can better you know, monitor different aspects of their lives and allows them to track different changes over time, identify the patterns, and so on. It also needs to be constantly worked on. It needs to be revised to ensure that it remains relevant to their various situations. Okay, so in doing so, the idea is to help people take a more active role in our wellness um, and well-being, identifying various solutions to common challenges that they face, and also um, how they can better deal with these challenges. So it was originally developed for people, by people with mental health challenges, for people with mental health challenges, to help them manage their conditions more effectively, and what we have done is to adapt some of these ideas and made it more accessible to people who may want to engage in wellness planning. Okay, so why is it important? 
for most of us, we don't really pay attention to our lives in general. We tend to take a very autopilot perspective and, you know, um, kind of live life on autopilot. And more so for the young people who are often faced with immense academic and relational stresses while still needing to navigate, you know, things like puberty, socioeconomic challenges that they may be facing outside school. So through wellness planning, we are helping youths to place a spotlight on their day-to-day -day experiences, take the first step towards being more intentional, more reflective about the different facets of wellness, to help them take a more objective look um, at the various strategies they have used thus far, you know, examine what works, what doesn't. And because we often encourage people to plan in groups, it provides them with an opportunity to interact with other people, learn from them, and it gives them that psychological space to brainstorm and come up with possible new wellness strategies. So underlying this idea of wellness planning is the notion of behavioral activation, which is kind of used in therapy to help people break out of a slump, more often used in depression and CBT. It allows people to gain a deeper insight into the relationship between their actions and their emotions and to think about what are some of the behaviors that may not be making them feel so good and what can they do to change them. Okay. Um, and so this is just an example of one of the things that we usually get participants to do, which is basically to list out um, a, a toolbox of sorts containing all the different wellness strategies and tools uh, using the 10 dimensions framework as a way to help them categorize these different activities more neatly. So as simple as this may sound, we find that people actually do have some difficulty while trying to think about how they usually take care of themselves, which kind of supports our point that most people do not live very intentionally and are kind of on an autopilot mode most of the time. So for youth, we remind them that they need to think about this from their current perspectives as well. So another activity that we use is the wellness wheel activity that we help, that we get people to think about the 10 dimensions of wellness, you know, rank them in terms of the importance in life at that moment, you know, the, that we just run them through this activity so that they can better understand, you know, which parts of their well-being or wellness they should focus on. So we designed this in a way, so it's a more concrete manner of tracking and it helps the youth to see that, you know, the progress they are making so that they can build on this success and, you know, have a framework to work from and they can use to, as they move forward. Okay, so uh, one more type of activity that we have are identification exercises. So for example, in this one, we get them to identify the different uh, life triggers that they may experience. We give them a set of steps that they can use. So the idea is to help them try and understand different patterns that may develop over time. And from there, they can then use this, um, use this framework from which they can then identify and learn what actually troubles them and come up with solutions to address some of these issues. Okay, so with that, I think um, I'll just stop here since we've run out of time, but yeah. Um, thank you for, for the opportunity and, you know, handing it back over to the panel. Thank you, Jonathan, for elaborating on mental wellness in a way that ties in both research and practice. So finally, we'll invite um, Naresh to share more about the work that is being done at IMPAD as well. Over to you, Naresh.
Thank you, Dr. Wong. You can have the slides, please. Ladies and gentlemen, esteemed guests and members of the community, today I would like to share how in, uh, organizations like IMPACT have understood the profound challenges faced by youth in their pursuit of well-being. Youth well-being takes on many forms. Uh, do you know that uh, 2,800 uh, 2, youth fail to progress past their post-secondary pathways each year? There's about In 2020, there was about two. 182 million individuals uh, who were not in education, employment, or training and missing out on crucial uh, early life stages of personal development, signaling a potential future disadvantage in the labor market. And about one in seven youths globally experienced mental health conditions, and yet they were largely unrecognized and untreated and this is uh, shared by a study uh, done by WHO in 2021. I am Naresh, I'm the Executive Director of IMPART, a charity that gives youth facing adversities a fighting chance, focusing on offering developmental opportunities, encompassing education, mental health care, and community support. Through our endeavors, uh, we have gleaned deeper insight to youth challenges surrounding both their immediate and holistic well-being. Depression and anxiety are among the leading causes of illness in 10 to 19 year olds. But how does this play out in the lives of youth facing adversities who typically come from a higher need and higher risk environment? We have seen many young people exhibiting mental health uh, conditions that are, and they are vulnerable uh, to social isolation, discrimination, not seeking help, education difficulties, risk-taking behaviors, and physical ill health. We all handle stress and anxiety and overwhelm differently, making it challenging to identify when a young person is on the verge of experiencing negative mental health conditions. While this applies to all youths, uh, youth-facing adversities in particular lack effective and accessible growth opportunities due to a myriad of challenges. Firstly, challenges with education. Uh, youth-facing adversities lack access to holistic education opportunities. Some of them require urgent academic interventions and they need uh, financial literacy support, uh, career opportunities. Secondly, challenges with community well-being, uh, as these uh, youth-facing adversities are not engaged through their interests, disengaged from healthy communities, and lack guidance towards their future self. Hence, these youths are often not valued for their asset they bring to the communities, uh, and we believe that they, these youth need robust future orientation as a necessary sort of, of uh, well-being. Lastly, challenges with mental health care services arise because they are highly rigid or institutionalized, making it a challenge to access services and obtain the necessary psychoeducation and skills. We also need to look at uh, recovery from a bigger perspective rather than simplified yardsticks. 
So wellness isn't just a feeling. Wellness isn't a couple of developmental goals. Wellness isn't some wellness program. Wellness is about being seen, heard, felt, and known as a person. Simply put, wellness, wellness well-being is personal. Here's just an example that I wanted to quote from Impart. Impart received a referral to help a young person who hasn't been going to school for two to three years, but he also hasn't been uh, leaving the home for two to three years in that period of time. Imagine being at home for that duration. He did not get a haircut, neither did he get his COVID vaccination. It was said that many agencies tried to help him, but he doesn't talk to anyone. In fact, it was mentioned that he threw a tantrum when one of the agencies came to do a home visit. I volunteered to go down to meet the boy with his school counsellor, who was determined to find help for him, uh, even though it was the, the, the last day of her work. I did not speak to the boy with any apprehension. I did not speak to him like a youth at risk. I asked him for his hopes and his fears. Next slide. Over time, he shared he had no hopes but his fear is in being in the current state. Although he had a sprawling network of online communities, he articulated no one really knows him and it will not matter to anyone if he's just gone from the world. I recall the school counselor being surprised to hear him speak for the first time in a couple of years. How did this happen? It was about making a personal connection to help the youth be uh, to help the youth feel seen. Subsequently, by understanding his strengths, capabilities, natural intelligence, and talents, it is possible to identify his unique needs. We are able to observe his behavior and support him uh, in a way that strengthened his internal resources. As mentioned, the boy had online communities because uh, of his love for games, and they were evidently not enough to help him to feel known. This prompted me to enlarge his community beyond just me and his family. As, uh, as his experience in the online communities underscores the importance of recognizing individual needs beyond surface level connections. Next slide. Johan, a uh, volunteer, uh, volunteer tutor, enters the scene as a beacon of hope for Denzel, as Denzel also hoped to continue his education. Johan understood the essence of well-being as a personal connection. Their friendship blossomed not through superficial interaction, but creating a genuine bond. With Johan's help, he even achieved good scores for his literacy component of the Workplace Literacy and Numeracy Assessment. Our well-being is inherently communal, and Johan may be a lifeline for Denzel, but he isn't just one piece of the. He's just one piece of the puzzle. He needs engagement in a larger community where his interests are not just acknowledged but celebrated. The crux of the problem lies in the fact that human well-being is not achieved alone. Our psychological health is grounded in attachment and acceptance by others. Next slide. After journeying with Denzel, he was able to leave his house, travel with his mom to attend an intertidal walk with Impact's community. It was his first time in, at the beach in many years. You can hardly see him in this picture except for his hair at the back. It is quite incredible that Denzel started to see Johan as a friend, even uh, to the point of calling Johan his only friend in the world. 
but that's not enough no one can uh, no one person can meet all the uh, social and relational needs of another so well-being stretches out from personal to communal dancers recovery continues through uh, journeying with other uh, volunteers on top of Johan. Next slide. Well-being then is bigger. It transcends Denzel's story and milestones. Well-being is bigger because we had to take a closer look at Johan's well-being as well. We had to recognize that it is interlinked with Denzel's well-being. We found out that Johan was also struggling with his well-being as he was tending to Denzel. Therefore, Impact is confronted with a profound challenge. If it takes a village to raise a child, then what does it mean to cultivate a village for the well-being of children and youth? Let me illuminate this through the story of Ryan, uh, an Impact volunteer since the time of the pandemic. His steadfast companionship with the young individual navigating uh, mental illnesses, education hurdles, and the weight of his transnational mom's stage 4 cancer illuminates a transformative journey. Initially, this young individual constantly rebuffed Ryan and resisted any forms of engagement. After six months, the dynamic shifted from an outright rejection to an initial uh, initiation of light-hearted conversation. At the same time, Ryan candidly shared the challenges he faced in connecting with the person with, uh, in a outreach program uh, group. This was a pivotal moment for him because in the supervision uh, session, he was able to frame this uh, difficulty that he was facing with the young person as a joint struggle with the youth with the help of his uh, fellow volunteers and uh, he, the clinical psychologist, he derived this uh, framework. And the youth uh, grappling with internal uh, disconnection and uh, personal struggles was also projecting these uh, challenges onto Ryan during his inter uh, interactions. In this moment, Ryan also then realized that we are all suffering, but we are working through this together and we can struggle well in, uh, in through the time. As it is such work of relating to others that creates well-being. And this is something that Johan lacked. And so through the, following uh, Ryan's personal breakthrough in the session, we also recognized that he had significant strides uh, made with the in his connection with his youth. The young individual willingly engaged Ryan on a weekly basis, extending their interactions beyond personal meeting to socializing with other peer group that shares uh, similar interests. Next. Notably, Ryan successfully attended uh, an impact community event in the issue with the youth. The youth, you won't be able to see him in this photo because he's hidden in, in the back. But the youth was performing uh, kind acts to random strangers, as you can see in the photo. Furthermore, during uh, some of the kind acts, the youth contributed by providing Mandarin translation support uh, for Ryan, uh, showcasing his valuable skills in bilingual capacity and complementing Ryan's uh, abilities. So my work at Impact has revealed how youth well-being is really a collective work. There's much talk about self-care as a response to buffer well-being these days. Yet the best of the self-care is never in isolation. Self-care 
at its best is community care. In communities, we are known as persons connected to others and find a larger purpose beyond our uh, immediate developmental needs by creating opportunities to care for others and the world. This approach uh, begins by re reframing or framing the distress of the youth as a collective rather than an individual problem. Ryan's transformative journey with the youth and with impact has brought forth a profound realization that we are all facing challenges, but by navigating them together, we are fostering resilience. Genuine well-being takes root within the connections forged with the youth, within the embrace of a collective community, and through the collaborative, uh, collaborative endeavors, shaping a narrative of resilience, understanding, and collective growth. Thank you. Thank you, Naresh, for closing off the sharing components with this relatable and more positive look at how we can promote greater well-being among our youth. We will now commence the Q&A portion of our panel discussion. Before we begin, just a reminder to all participants that you may type your questions using the Q&A panel on the right side of your screen. While we give our audience members some time to reflect on and to craft their questions, I would just like to start the session off by asking the panelists um, about a particular aspect of social isolation um, that I, I think you've all alluded to this or even explicitly mentioned it during your respective sharing. So um, your research both in Singapore as well as internationally has suggested that social isolation is a, is an increasing challenge for the youth of today. And just want to ask the panelists, what do you think are some of the main reasons why social isolation concerns seems more prevalent today and how we can help to build stronger bonds and connections in supporting the youth? Perhaps I can invite um, uh, Naraj to begin first. Yes, maybe I, I share a little bit more. Uh, in my experience, I think we have been seeing a lot of people in social isolation and uh, some of them, we also term them as hikikomoris. It has been really difficult to be able to go out there to help them uh, because uh, a, a lot of times it's also a systemic problem, which means it also involves their family. And... Um, why is uh, why do I think that the social isolation concerns are more prevalent? After COVID, it seems like many of these young people did not return back or reintegrate back into the community. Many of them have found uh, the solace of being isolated and uh, online communities as a better solution than to go and face the world where they might be facing bullying or they may not feel belonged uh, and they may not want to face the pressures of the world, uh, for example, academic uh, stresses and even their parents' expectations. So uh, it, it does seem like uh, when they went into the pandemic and then they were left in that, uh, in that, in that zone, uh, what it seems like they have not uh, gained the muscles to be able to move into the community. And many a times, uh, the anxiety that they are facing, the social anxiety they are facing, is reinforced by not doing anything about it. And, and a lot of times, uh, the parents uh, also ate that anxiety to just be there. So th this is one of the reasons why I feel like social isolation uh, has been more prevalent in the youth among, uh, yeah, in the youth of these days. Do I invite perhaps um, Jonathan to share your thoughts? 
Yeah, okay, thanks. Um, thanks, Dr. Wong. So I think um social isolation can sometimes relate to the way that um relationships tend to be very transient these days. Um, they tend to be very fleeting. It's hard to form that genuine um connectedness with someone else. And in part, I think there is definitely the the COVID pandemic. Um definitely has a role to play in, in this uh, regard in terms of our ability to socialize with people and how do we actually function in broader society. So uh, COVID is definitely one of it. I think it's also an increasingly digitalized world, like what Naresh talks about. You know, people tend to live their entire lives online. And when they do, um, they also tend to have a difficulty disconnecting from this online world, especially if they have found, you know, that genuine community there, which is not a bad thing per se, but sometimes, you know, they do, as a consequence of this community online, feel socially isolated when you talk about the real world. So in that sense, it's a very difficult balance to actually see if people are socially isolated or are they physically isolated. Um, meaning that, you know, are people simply just left alone instead of actually not being um, connected to others in the same physical proximity. So um, I think it's a, it's a challenging thing to think, think, think about when it comes to social isolation because there are so many factors at play. Um, definitely COVID has been a, a huge disruptor and we can only really tell I think whether people are increasingly feeling socially isolated once we have come out of COVID a bit more. And I think a lot of what we are seeing now is the, the residual effects of a pandemic that we have all weathered together. Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts. Given that both Jordan and, and Narash spoke about the effects of online communities in, in this um, in, in this regard, I, I think it would be, be great if we hear a bit from uh, Prof. Krista about your thoughts in this area as well. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go out there and say being alone is different from feeling lonely. And when we think about the social aspect of social isolation, it could be that we are unable to see there is block optics to where the sociality is. So let me give you an example. I used to travel frequently all by myself around the world in order to conduct field work as an anthropologist. So it's very common for me to be plugged into my phone or my laptop to be doing work. And I feel extremely connected to my people around the world. This is the same for any young person you may see on the street. Now, I often come across grandmas and grandpas of different cultural groups and nationalities to come to me and say, oh, are you okay? You're all alone. Are you lonely? Would you like company? And in my heart, I think, oh, that's really nice of them. But in my head, I'm thinking, I'm not alone. I'm currently in a group chat with 100 people. I'm not feeling lonely or shy. I'm feeling extremely social. But in a world, in a virtual space that is not seen, by people in this context. So I do think that we need to think of communities as being more portable these days. It's um, an inevitable fact of life with migration, mobility, and people needing to be on the move all the time for work. Even within a country like Singapore, young people who do not yet qualify for public housing with the HDB, but who would like to move out of their parental home, Moving from rental to rental over one-year leases is very common. So being on the move and being portable also means your community is online. And therefore, our ideas of what comprises social or sociality also needs to accommodate that. 
Secondly, I think the feelings and the impressions of people being isolated or being alone is just a lot more documented with one person media, social media, personal broadcasting. Not too far away from us in Korea, there is a very recent phenomenon of honjok, which refers to people who live alone. If you were to go onto YouTube, common across the Asia Pacific, and even here in Singapore, are people producing what they call living alone diaries. So they might bring their phones or their cameras with them, showing people how they go about their entire day, maybe interacting with as much as a server or the driver of their Uber or their taxi, and they're very happy going about their way in the individual sense. Now for these people, they feel that this is liberating. They're not succumbing to the pressures of needing to be always on, to always play out that respectful feelings, you need to go up the hierarchy, you feel like you need to be available to people to talk to you. And this is a changing aspect of how we are recognizing that people, introverts or extroverts, people of different backgrounds and personalities have preferences for how we feel normalized in society. So I do think social isolation may come with a bit of stigma, but if I were to reword this, I would say that being alone, being independent is becoming more visible, but also becoming more accepted as people are confident in doing so. Thank you. Prof. John, do you have anything to add for this topic? Yeah, thanks, Kevin. Yeah, I, I think alluding to what uh, Dr. Jonathan and Mr. Naresh and also Professor Chris has mentioned, uh, I think there are two things that I thought I heard from Mr. Naresh and Jordan highlighted is uh, Mr. Naresh talked about the Hikukumori, the hidden youth. This is one area that we study quite a bit in the couple of, last couple of years. Uh, it's pretty prevalent, uh, obviously, in Japan where it was first coined. But when we spoke to our colleague in Hong Kong, Taiwan and Korea and China, as well as in Singapore, uh, we do have our hidden youth, just that we may not want to call it Hikikomori in Singapore or in Hong Kong, we call it hidden youth. But essentially, we realize that uh, there is increasing uh, observed youth who tend to isolate themselves or prefer to stay alone on their own. Uh, and that was obviously more prominent during COVID lockdown. But even before COVID lockdown, we are already seeing that phenomenon coming up. Uh, and I think they, when we studied that group of uh, youth and teenagers, uh, we noticed two important subgroups. One is the so-called primary hidden youth, uh, where they, by, by temperament, they, they, they really prefer to be on their own. Uh, that, that numbers have not changed very much because it's really personality and temperament. Uh, some people are more introverted. Some people prefer to have less friends. And they are perfectly fine with that. They are not distressed by it. Then the second group, uh, is actually the secondary hidden youth, which I think is really catching the attention of clinicians and uh, mental health professionals. Because the secondary hidden youth or secondary uh, uh, hikokumori have predisposed uh, 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 mental health challenges. Uh, we, we also saw in the recent study that there is a greater number of uh, youth uh, reporting uh, social anxiety symptoms much more common than in the earlier uh, uh, generation of uh, uh, population. Uh, so social anxiety tend to prevent them from wanting to uh, be with the community or with people around them and highly correlated to performance anxiety, be it in school or in social situation that they feel they're under scrutiny. Secondly, I think there are also greater awareness that some of us may uh, uh, notice that there are more greater awareness of autistic spectrum. Uh, so for those who have a little bit of spectrum but not really autistic, uh, it is their natural preference and also uh, their comfort level that they stay away from a crowd. But the secondary uh, uh, hidden youth, what we are concerned about besides the social anxiety and the spectrum, 
it's really the group of youth where uh, they uh, do have mood changes and do have uh, uh, emotional challenges from time to time. Not to stigmatize, I think we have to be very careful not to stigmatize them, but it's to recognize that uh, during these challenging years of growing up, uh, there are moments that emotionally can be overwhelming. And they, they, they find that staying on their own uh, can sometimes help them find their peace, their inner peace in their safe environment. And uh, of course, uh, uh, Mr. Naresh talked about the, the case study about uh, this uh, uh, youth where he stayed away from school for two years. Uh, yes, actually, if you look at uh, many of Family Service Centre uh, working on the Enhanced Step-Up Programme, uh, they have come across many of those who, who did not attend school, maybe triggered by issue at home or school or with peers' acceptance. But when the behaviour sets in uh, of staying away from home, uh, they, 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 are, they are stay at home and um, comfort level in their safe space become more entrenched. And given today where everything is pretty accessible, uh, you can get grab food, uh, you can get your account uh, uh, credited to e-bank or, or, or pay now, uh, they actually can can sustain themselves both physically and financially staying uh, away. And of course, with the social media, as what Professor Krista mentioned, uh, they may be physically disconnected or isolated from their physical friends, but um, on the virtual world, they, they, are, they are very well connected, not just locally, but internationally. So I think this is really an interesting phenomenon that we are observing. And I think um, to summarize, we'll say that uh, sense of isolation or feeling loneliness can be perceived uh, and can be sometimes uh, uh, experienced as uh, distressing. But sometimes it's, um, uh, it may not be distressing, but actually it may be a safe space for individuals. I'll stop here and return to the chairman. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for sharing all these different perspectives about the issue of social isolation. Now, now we'll turn to um, one, one, of the, one of the related points that, that we see quite commonly from our, our different attendees. So attendees actually want, want to, do, to, to ask um, the panelists about um, some interconnected issues that may be related for, the, for social media usage for our youth today. So one, one of the key questions that come up is that do we see youth um, self-diagnosing a, a little bit more these days, especially based on social media con content? And some of the some of the attendees also feel that there is this tendency to um, romanticize mental health issues to today. So just just wondering whether you have any thoughts about this, as well as the, the links between um, social media usage and well-being. Shall I jump in? Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, let me refer to two separate pieces of research work. The first with some young people in Singapore. Um, I interviewed a group of young youth who experienced what we call young grief. They were in their teens up to the age of 25 and had experienced their very first loss um, in the death of a loved one. So this could be a best friend, a girlfriend, a boyfriend. And for them at that young age, it was grief that they felt was unprecedented and unpredicted because it wasn't as common as the grief of a grandparent or a parent. Of the young people I've interviewed in these spaces, um, they certainly did have a lot of gripes about how young other friends were romanticizing the grief tribute on Facebook. Folks that they felt were never close to the deceased were coming in and sharing very, very long um, testimonies. And they felt that it was sort of like a competition to showcase who was closest to the deceased. And that had a more adverse impact on the mental health of the partner, the boyfriend, the girlfriend the sibling who was watching. 
two of the young people I've interviewed in this group have also retreated from public life and had to take a year off university and polytechnic respectively. The silver lining in our conversation through my long-term ethnography with them is that they found peace and they found glimmers of hope in group chats. For one of these young people, they tell me that among their community of online folks, they have group chats where they have never let the deceased person leave the chat. So this is a chat with all living people and one ghost, and they still speak to this person as if they were a living. They would talk about updates, what they've eaten, graduation, and now well into their early 20s, they talk about marriage, child rearing, etc. And having just that person's icon there makes them feel, feel like they were still connected and processing grief in their own time, in their own space. More importantly, it was also in these spaces, these private Facebook groups and private WhatsApp groups, that these young people started to share resources about how to manage grief specific for their trauma demographic, specific for their age group as well. The second group of people that I have studied are those on TikTok, who in the last two years were very enthusiastic about self-diagnosing, especially when they were talking about issues like ADHD, ADD, or anything that appears to be um, diagnosable via a 10 second or a three minute TikTok clip that appears to be more behavioral. Now we know there's a lot of misinformation in this space and I'll probably defer to Prof Wong to tell us more about that. But for the young people whom I've interviewed and asked, why do you bandwagon on this? Do you trust the information there? The key thing they take away is that they're happy, that there is conversation about what they deal with, especially when it comes to some of these illnesses that come with stigma like Tourette. On the other hand, they do feel that some young people self-diagnose because they romanticize it in their bandwagoning and feel that it's cool to be able to talk about being a marginalized person. Now, I won't comment about the actual practice of diagnosing them, but in terms of the actual social media culture, this is telling us that young people are increasingly seeking validation, attention, and online community um, when they're bounded by similar experiences or bounded by a very micro-minority facet of their identity or their demographic. So if anything, there's a little bit of hope in that social media spaces can create silos or rooms for these people to find each other and then chat in minoritarian spaces where the regular internet may not accommodate such conversation. Thank you, Crystal. Can I invite uh, Prof. John to share about your, your thoughts on this issue as well from the perspective of a clinician? Yes, thanks, uh, Chairman, and yeah, thanks for uh, Professor Crystal for sharing a very interesting perspective um, of how uh, uh, some you've actually grieved uh, over a loss of important friendship or, or mix of kin. Um, with regards to self-diagnosis, I think uh, for, as a clinician, uh, obviously we are very happy when our patient or our client come to us having read up about their condition uh, and thinking or knowing that they have some of these symptoms or signs. As I mentioned earlier on, uh, many of the challenges that constitute a mental health disorder or illness usually will present a sign or symptoms. And it is very clear that with the internet, uh, the vast knowledge and content uh, uh, availability out there, many uh, actually can do a checklist and cross-reference if they do have some of these symptoms or these signs. So the self-diagnosis part is inevitable, and it is a good sign uh, in the context of greater awareness, uh, in the context of greater literacy. So I think the, 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 the challenge is really how do we calibrate information uh, and contextualize on an individual person's life uh, or medical state 
uh, in a, a correct or, uh, or appropriate calibration uh, so that the individual may know that, whether he or she has crossed the threshold. Because we all know that many conditions, for example, blood pressure, when it's raised, all of us get excited after a run, of course, our blood pressure goes up. But it becomes hypertension when it, it reaches a critical threshold where it can be harmful for the body or for the heart or for the brain where you get a stroke or heart attack. So I think the key issue is really recognizing the symptoms uh, is the first step of literacy, uh, mental health literacy, which I think uh, some of our panelists have spoke about how to improve uh, mental health literacy among their youth and their, even their parents uh, so that they can better understand and support their youth. So the question here is that how can we help the individual's literacy to the level where they could better contextualize and calibrate to know whether they have crossed the threshold. I think this is a part where uh, mental health, trained mental health professionals, accredited uh, professionals will be at hand and of use to them to do the confirmation or validation of, literacy, uh, of the threshold if it's breached. And then of course, appropriate uh, uh, intervention can be offered. With regards to romanticizing, I think uh, Prof. Crystal talked about um, how it uh, going to the, the social media or the internet uh, chat group provides them uh, an opportunity to talk about it with people of similar challenges. Actually, before the advent of social media and internet, uh, in the community, there's such thing called support group. Uh, many of you who are familiar with US, uh, where the, the alcoholic uh, recovering, they joined this Alcoholic Anonymous AA. That was before the advent of social media. They meet regularly. They understand each other's problem, they talk about it, they share solution, they share perspective, and they grow. And I think the support group concept, it is a very strong and powerful healing process for any situation that is tough for an individual. And it gathers not just peer learning, peer support, but it also provides them validation. And of course, a safe space uh, to allow them to uh, 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 share uh, their, their, their emotional distress. So I think the, the key issue here is that while we, we may think that they are just romanticizing, but actually it's just taking a form of a support group. But what's the difference between social media group chat and a support group? Is A support group usually is organized uh, by trained professionals so that they can facilitate and they can not so much of regulate, but guide and provide the direction. So I think if our social media can have the system of having a mature individual to lead a group or even professional to come in and support and provides the, the, the sharing and the, or the members to take reference and to decide uh, what is appropriate for their experiences. I think the, the social media actually can be a wonderful uh, way of uh, uh, providing support to, to the youth. So I would say that uh, the, the, the only uh, differentiating factor is whether they can be uh, better supported with uh, mature leaders in the discussion, as well as professional provide uh, insight, then I think it would be perfect as any support group in the past. Thanks. Jonathan and Naraj, would you have anything to add from the perspective of the, the direct work that you do with youth? Yeah, so I think I think for me, um, whenever I work with youth, social media is kind of seen as a place where they can unwind, you know, not take things too seriously. So because of that, sometimes they do not put too much thought into what they post on social media and they may not think so deeply about 
actually if they are romanticizing you know mental health conditions or symptoms and um that's why you see um people are very fascinated with personality tests online it's very fun to kind of categorize yourself or to understand a bit more about yourself even though from a more um theoretical perspective we know that many of these tests are actually not very um properly constructed or you know not sound in the long term from a scientific perspective but i think definitely there is value like uh, prof john talked about how it opens up conversations relating to mental health issues but i also want to kind of caveat it with saying that um while there is that awareness i think sometimes we still need to address the self-stigma at play in terms of getting them to shift that awareness into action and definitely there are also the those bad bad actors on social media which are leveraging mental health issues to for their own benefit um either through monetizing the content that they make you know tiktok we have a lot of these people a lot of anonymous accounts that thrive on this because you know it's what people enjoy partaking in um and i think to to kind of just point out one of the more negative aspects of social media i think last year um, we had a huge issue in Singapore, maybe not huge, but it was a significant issue in Singapore where there were people posing as um, IMH doctors uh, on TikTok. And because of that, um, you know, they were commenting on people's posts and making all kinds of funny comments that were just making fun of mental health issues as opposed to, you know, raising awareness about the, 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 the topic at hand. So I think individuals like this really set back the conversation, but I think it's also important to recognize that sometimes in social media, the algorithm makes it such that the more you engage with such content, that's all you're going to see. And you don't see the larger narrative, which is where I really like uh, Prof. Crystal's point on social media not being a homogenous entity. There's a lot of diversity. There are many pockets of space. And sometimes when we are too trapped in that pocket of space, even as researchers, it can be difficult to see outside of that space. And because of that, um, it's very difficult to capture social media's actual impact on well-being, on mental health, because we don't really know. Some people definitely use it for their benefit and others are using it in a more negative manner. In the interest of, of time, perhaps we can we can move on to the next um, another question that was also um, very high up in the minds of our attendees. So this relates to a particularly vulnerable group of youth. Yeah. So re recent figures that you say, um, both in Singapore and all the world have suggested that LGBTQ plus youth they are actually some of the most vulnerable to different mental health issues such as suicide and self harm. Yet um, these issues are. Um, we are already addressed at the policy level for this group of um, vulnerable youth. Um, do, do you have any thoughts about how we can address some of these challenges better? Maybe you can start off with Naraj, since he hasn't had the chance to weigh in on the previous topic. I was thinking whether you want to get uh, Prof. Krista to go first. Sure, no problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me be very specific about the external policy I feel um, competent to comment on. I think this pertains to what our media guidelines allow to be circulated in the mainstream broadsheet on television and cinema and on social media. In the 2000s when I was studying influencers, you know, before they were called bloggers, there were very few people who were publicly out and there were very few people who were out and proud of doing so. 
What I mean is that while there were a significant number of people who were actually queer among the influencers of that generation, not many of them were willingly or publicly or intentionally outed. Many of them ended up rebranding as being lesbian or gay because someone had called them out or outed them against their will. And this is completely different from you taking agency to claim your own narrative. Now that said, in the influencer era on YouTube, there were a few influencers who were very public about needing to occupy space. And there are only very few ways you can do that while being compliant with the YouTube algorithm and the Singapore broadsheets in order for your contents to be seen, which is especially important for influencers because that is their bread and butter. They need to earn an income, not because they are lukewarm about their politics. Now, these young people ended up astroturfing or putting symbolism in their music videos and covers of same-sex couples, of dressing up in drag, of bringing on very um, popular underground drag queens or queer choreographers into their videos in the very first generation just to occupy space and normalize their visibility in the space of YouTube. That was the constraint that these group of creators were working with. Now, if we're talking about the 2020s in the last four years, we are now in the creator era. The biggest distinction here is that folks are now monetizing their social media, not based on their own branding as a person with a body and identity and a face, but just by the contents they put out there. So they don't, have, they don't actually have to reveal so much about their private life. They can do this faceless. They can just focus on a topic. And in this creator era, a lot of young people have begun in Singapore to talk about the experiences of being queer and housing. Now, a lot of the internet phenomena that we discuss seems like it is um, a cohort effect. People around the world experience this, but something so situated and specific to Singapore is how young people access housing independently if they're not heterosexual, married, qualifying for HDB, or if they're not, you know, 35 and living with a parent. And I know that laws are changing, HDB is accommodating different types of ownership, but the baseline is for queer young people who would like to couple up or who would like to live independently. This is not an easy task to do. Creators though, on the likes of YouTube, in Instagram activists, wipe cards, and even on TikTok are now sharing their experiences of coupling and housing. How can you make this affordable? What are the safe districts and neighborhoods in Singapore? If you are suspecting that you might be um, out queer and you want to seek resources, which of these are allies to your specific ethnic group, a specific hobby where you can meet people to chat with, which of these come from a medical and a science background if you actually want to talk with a professional versus if you want to talk to um, predecessors, people who are slightly older who have been through the coming up process. And so it is in the constraint of housing and coupling in Singapore that the Singaporean internet for queer people can be an especially important resource, especially when you may not be getting this information through the traditional means like a school or a poster on the bus or in cinema or television. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. And yeah, so just to add on to this conversation, uh, in IMPA, we do see uh, young people who are of the LGBTQ+. Plus. Uh, and I think that um, a lot of people that we are uh, working with might be displaced uh, they, because of uh, the, the parents finding out 
or they are displaced because they are just running away. And um, many of them do have suicidal ideation, self-harm. And, and one of the things that they find it very difficult to is to go out to even professionals out there to, to find support. And when they have uh, sought help from Impact, we dispatch the volunteers to provide that non-judgmental support and we help them through building skills and all that. So this is what we are doing on the ground. Um, and we train our uh, volunteers to be sensitive because at the end of the day, the question that Impact is always faced with is how to, to cultivate a village that is able to take care of young people and, and their well-being. And so this is something that we are always uh, working on and building uh, within Impact, uh, especially in the volunteer team, to be sensitive to the young pe person's um, uh, challenges. Thank you for sharing your thoughts, Naresh. I think we have um, time for just one, one last question. So just, just to end the session off on a more positive light as well, can I invite each of you to share in brief about the best or perhaps even the most overlooked ways in which you think we can help youth to improve on their mental well-being? Yeah, Chairman, uh, if I may just uh, request the host uh, control to help me uh, put on slide 31. The association between resilience and mental health. I think basically, um, I didn't manage to share this slide earlier on, but this is really an important finding from our studies uh, that actually when we look at the resilience, uh, we, we have a, a youth resilience uh, uh, rating profiling uh, that identifies 10 uh, resilience domain. And we found that actually uh, association resilience and mental health symptoms actually uh, the top four resilience domain actually associated with mental health symptoms were uh, whether the lack of uh, optimism or the lack of positive self-image uh, and the sense of personal control, uh, the level or extent of relationship and social support one can get, as well as the ability to regulate their emotion. So I would address by saying that uh, if any VW or any youth organization were to develop program, uh, the best best bet is really to make sure that the programs will be able to address these four core areas among many other urgent issues. Uh, it shows the greatest contribution towards mitigating against some of the mental health symptoms. And taking a step back, the earlier question about LGBT fraternity, uh, 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 I think it is important to recognize that it's not that they are more vulnerable, it's not that they are uh, 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 they have more challenges and more suicidal risks. Just that when we run services, we run clinic, we run, run self-help group, we do see them, we do meet them. But there are many of them actually out there do not have this problem. But what we encounter and when we work with them, we recognize that they face the same challenge as many of our other youth and even ourselves. When their self-image is dented, when they, they don't have much to look forward to because of certain constraint or rejection by family or the society, uh, or they feel that they are not in control of many of their life uh, destiny, or they may not have the kind of strong social fabric to support them. Uh, they are just as vulnerable as any other youth or, or because they are all, all the odds are stacked against them, they are actually more vulnerable. So I, I would say that at the end of the day, uh, there, are, there are many reasons factors. If uh, the control can go back uh, uh, four slides, uh, to slide 27. I'll end with this slide by saying that uh, when we study the youth resilience, which has been shown to 
be very uh, predictable of how an individual would experience internal uh, distressing uh, symptoms like anxiety, depression, is that uh, there are 10 factors that will actually help to mitigate. Uh, so CYRUS stands for Singapore Youth Resilience uh, uh, Scale. And you look at positive self-image, I talk about social support, humor, positive thinking, uh, emotional regulation are the top four. Uh, I think uh, earlier on, uh, my fellow panelists talked about spirituality uh, and faith, not so much of religion. Of course, to us, some of us, we take it as religion, but for some, it may not be religion, but it's a, 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 a dimension of spirituality. Uh, and confidence and sense of control uh, and being flexible. Flexible is seen as knowing that you have option. And of course, the, the sense of staying on top of things is you are able to cope positively. And sometimes when going are tough, you, you, if you can commit yourself to the cause and persevere, obviously you see the light at the end of the tunnel. So I think these are the, 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 the instruments that we have developed at the university to help uh, teens and, and young adults to profile themselves. So I would say that if anything, we want to invest in your programming and your resource, I think this will be, uh, should be something that you may want to consider. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you for the very comprehensive answer. I'm, I'm quite mindful of the, the time that we have left. So we need to wrap, wrap up soon. I quite just invite the, the remaining three panelists to just, just share uh, um, one, a simple one line. How do you think you can help to improve mental well-being for youth in Singapore? Jonathan? Hey, yeah, uh, thanks. And I think um, if I was to kind of push out one thing, I think we need to redefine what peer support means in Singapore. I think we need to start bringing back the lived experience component into the idea of peer support to make it actually a shared experience. And in doing so, be able to shift the way that we view the idea of peer-to-peer -peer support as not just simply being about people being in demographically similar positions, but more specifically having shared a similar experience in life. Yeah, so I think that's one thing that, you know, we do need to work on in terms of the mainstreaming of peer support. Thank you. Narash? Uh, I believe that uh, youth well-being isn't seen in isolation. Uh, it needs to be seen in communities. And the whole thing that uh, I'm looking at is how do you build communities that uh, are healthy, that, that helps other young people to be well. Thank you. Krista? The days where things are very hard, put it on your wall or post it, tattoo your forehead, tell yourself, it's not you, it's the system. And while we're waiting for the system to change, we can help support each other on the way there. Thank you. Thank you, Krista, for rounding up our discussion in such a positive manner. And thank you to all four panelists, John, Krista, Jonathan, and Naresh, for sharing further insights into your respective areas of expertise and for your thoughtful responses during our Q&A session. So with that, we have come to a close for the online day of Singapore Perspectives 2024. On behalf of IPS and the SP2024 organizing team, I would like to thank everyone here for your active participation in our panel discussion, which made today a fruitful day of learning and exchange for all of us. The video of today's session will be available on the online platform for about two weeks if you would like to rewatch the session. And at this juncture, we would also like to remind all attendees that the in-person conference for SP2024 will be held next Monday, 29th January at Science Expo and Convention Centre. During the in-person conference, we will get the opportunity to participate in important discussions relating to domains such as work, family, and politics. We are excited to have you join us then and to have this opportunity to interact with all of you in person.
person as well. An email with the conference details will be sent to all participants later this week, so please keep a lookout for that. Once again, thank you for your time, attention and active participation today, and we look forward to seeing you all at Sense Expo and Convention Centre next Monday. Thank you. Thank you.